presenting this month's special series, Focus on Allergy. Allergy season is in full swing. From asthma to food allergies, ReachMD is keeping you up to date with the latest in allergy medicine. You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Hot Topics in Allergy, presented by the American College of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. Your host is Dr. Caton Sheff, Medical Director of the Lafayette Allergy and Asthma Clinic in Lafayette, Indiana. What are the best ways to prepare for and prevent anaphylaxis? Are there new treatment options available? Joining us to discuss the diagnosis and management of anaphylaxis, an updated practice parameter, is Dr. Richard Nicholas, Clinical Professor of Medicine at George Washington University Medical Center. Dr. Nicholas is co-author of the Joint Task Force's Anaphylaxis Parameters. Welcome, Dr. Nicholas. Thank you. Well, let's start with what is the most common cause of anaphylaxis? Probably the most common cause for anaphylaxis are reactions to foods. Certainly, there are many other causes for anaphylaxis. Medications, stinging insect venom, sometimes, although somewhat rarely, airborne allergens, a number of different things, but probably the most common of all of them are reactions to foods. Well, how does anaphylaxis present itself? That's a very good question because when you ask many physicians about that, in terms of trying to give a definition, they'll say, well, I can't give you a definition, but I know what it is when I see it. And for that reason, uh, a couple of years ago, an international panel of experts on this topic was convened at the NIH to try to define what anaphylaxis really is. They came up with three scenarios. I'd like to present those and then maybe discuss something about how you can have other sorts of presentations. The three scenarios that they said were consistent with the diagnosis of anaphylaxis were first when you had an acute onset of a reaction. And as I'm sure most people are aware of the fact that anaphylaxis is a sudden, potentially life-threatening type of event. And they said minutes to several hours, but that could be discussed further in terms of the length of time. But certainly it's an acute onset. With involvement of the skin or maybe as a surrogate to that mucosal tissue and at least one of the following organ system involvement, either some sort of respiratory compromise, particularly upper airway obstruction due to laryngeal edema, or reduced blood pressure or symptoms of end-organ dysfunction as a result of the decrease in blood pressure. Now, that's one scenario that they said was consistent with anaphylaxis. The second scenario they said was when you had involvement of two or more organ systems, which occurred rapidly after exposure to a likely allergen. For example, a patient who is thought to have reacted to a certain type of shellfish when they have a history of reacting to other shellfish in the past. And that would include any one of these four organ systems. Again, the skin or mucosal tissue, any sort of respiratory compromise, decrease in blood pressure or associated symptoms, or persistent gastrointestinal symptoms. So if you had any of those two organ systems involved in that setting, then that would be consistent with anaphylaxis. But then they went on to say, and I think knowing something about the amount of controversy on this topic, I could see why this was added. They said it was also consistent with anaphylaxis. If you had a reduction in blood pressure, and they defined for children and adults the amount of blood pressure they thought was significant, after exposure to a known allergen, for example, a patient who knows that they've had an allergic reaction to penicillin and is given penicillin again, for example, 
So there, there'd be only one organ system involved, the cardiovascular system, but it would be in a setting where an anaphylactic reaction would not be unexpected. Now, those are the three scenarios that they establish for a definition of anaphylaxis. What I'd like to do is to point out that not infrequently you can see anaphylaxis occurring with involvement of only one organ system other than just when you have a fall in blood pressure. For example, I can remember when I was doing my fellowship that we were asked to consult on a patient in the hospital, a 40-year-old man who had been admitted for diagnostic evaluation prior to having heart surgery. And he was given penicillin prophylactically, and 30 minutes later developed a ventricular arrhythmia. Fortunately, he was successfully resuscitated, but the resident noted that he had a few urticarial lesions on his legs, very minor, that most people would have overlooked. So we saw that patient, skin tested him for penicillin, and he had a very strongly positive reaction to the major determinant for penicillopolylysine. So this, in retrospect, was a gentleman who presented as an acute cardiac event, but actually had experienced anaphylaxis. One of the reasons for the potential for that to occur is that there are abundant mast cells in the human heart. And mast cells and basophils in the circulation are the cells that are really involved with true anaphylactic reactions, where allergen binds to or actually bridges IgE molecules attached to high-affinity receptors on the surface of mast cells and basophils and initiates a series of intracellular reactions leading to the results of pharmacologically active mediators, the best known of which is histamine, but leukotrienes, prostaglandins, kinins, and cytokines and other mediators. So there are abundant mast cells in the human heart, and they're located in very strategic areas along the adventitia of large coronary arteries and in close contact with small intramural vessels as well. Simulation of these mast cells can produce a negative ionotrophic effect in myocardial depression. And there have been patients reported in the literature who, during anaphylaxis, have been shown to have constriction of the coronary arteries and also been shown to have changes on electrocardiograph that are identical to that which you would see in an acute myocardial infarction. So it's important to recognize that patients can present with that type of event, which is due to anaphylaxis. I remember, too, seeing a patient in my office a number of years ago who had been skin tested and had some positive reactions, but she also mentioned that shortly after the skin testing was put on that she felt sort of a tightness or constriction in her throat. And when we looked at her throat again, and we'd done that before we did the skin testing, there was a tremendous increase in edema of the uvula. So clearly this patient was having an anaphylactic reaction involving the upper respiratory tract without any other cutaneous manifestations or anything of that type. And that's important because if you look at the data in the literature, it will almost always say that it's hard to make a diagnosis of anaphylaxis unless you have cutaneous manifestations. And in fact, urticarian angioedema occurs in 85 to 90% of patients with anaphylaxis, but clearly, as I've pointed out, not in all of them. And the next most likely symptom to see is upper airway obstruction, or in some cases, lower airway obstruction with uh, bronchospasm, manifestations of hypotension, or GI types of manifestation as well. So there are different types of presentation that you can have. And in fact, 
There was a retrospective case review study of 25 patients who experienced fatal anaphylaxis, and they showed that only one of the patients of the 25 that had a fatal anaphylactic reaction had dermatologic manifestations. So it's possible then to have just one organ system involved, and it's possible to have anaphylaxis occur without any dermatologic manifestations. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Hot Topics in Allergy on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Katen Sheth, and joining me to discuss the diagnosis and management of anaphylaxis and updated practice parameter is Dr. Richard Nicholas, clinical professor of medicine at George Washington University Medical Center. Well, we've talked about some of the manifestations or how it's going to show up, but how should we be evaluating and managing the patient with a history of episodes of anaphylaxis? Well, I think the first thing you have to do is to be sure that you're dealing with anaphylaxis, and that gets into the question about differential diagnosis. And one of the types of conditions that you have to really think about in any patient who presents with any sort of scenario that we've just described in terms of the differential, are patients who may have an abundance of mast cells. Certainly, mast cells are the main cell that are involved in anaphylactic reactions, as we just described, but there are individuals who can have an abundance of more mast cells than we would normally expect that have what's called mast cell disease. They can present with just dermatologic manifestations aside from when they have anaphylactic episodes, which are often salmon-colored, light brown, often very nondescript lesions which are easy to miss but which have a characteristic feature, and that is what's called derriere sign, where if you rub these lesions, they will urticate and form a small urticarial lesion. That's pathognomonic of urticaria pigmentosa, which is the skin manifestations of systemic mast cell disease. And in fact, there are other types of conditions which can cause endogenous production of histamine and other mediators, not only systemic mast cell disease, but also some types of basophilic leukemia and acute myelocytic leukemia. So that's one thing that one has to think about in the differential diagnosis. Now, because such things as flushing, hypotension, those types of manifestations are seen frequently with anaphylaxis, you also have to consider any other medical condition that could produce those types of symptoms. Probably the most common differential diagnosis we have to make, though, is between anaphylaxis and a vasovagal-type reaction. Now, we used to think that that was very easy to do because you could make the differentiation based on the fact that with vasovagal reactions, you really didn't have cutaneous manifestations like you do so commonly in anaphylaxis. And even more importantly... Vasovagal reactions were associated with bradycardia, and anaphylactic reactions were associated with tachycardia. But a study published several years ago pointed out that a very high percentage of patients in anaphylaxis can present with bradycardia. So that doesn't always give you a differential. So when those questions come up on the boards, and we're always taught to answer it that way, we really clinically need to think that through a little bit more. Right. And I think that you have to think differently depending on what you would expect to be the correct answer on a board exam, for example, and what you might see in clinical practice. But it's certainly a fact, it's evidence-based in the literature that patients with anaphylaxis can present with bradycardia. So whether or not that would be the answer you'd want to give on a board exam, I don't know. But it's certainly something you have to think about in terms of your management of patients. 
As we uh, start to wrap up, what are the treatments that you'd recommend very briefly for a patient who's having anaphylaxis or that we all need to consider? I think the most important thing that I can say in this whole interview is that epinephrine is the treatment of choice. There is no contraindication to epinephrine. I just saw a patient today in, in her 80s who uh, has underlying cardiac disease, but I gave her epinephrine, and we'll talk about how that's given uh, in a moment, but I gave that to her because if she has uh, another reaction like she had last time and can't breathe, she needs the epinephrine to survive that attack regardless of the underlying cardiac disease. But epinephrine, unfortunately, is not prescribed as it really should be. There are data that show from emergency rooms that only 27% of patients in one study who were seen in the emergency room for a true anaphylactic reaction received auto-injectable epinephrine when they left the emergency room, and only 12% received epinephrine in the emergency room. I won't go all through the data in regard to that because of the lack of time, but there's a lot of data to indicate that epinephrine is still underutilized. Now, one of the things that's important to recognize is that there can be biphasic or protracted reactions. What it shows is that there are some patients, in fact, in some studies up to about 35% of patients, who may need more than one dose. And that's why we routinely now will give the patient two EpiPens or maybe even two Twinjects, even though there's two doses of epinephrine in the Twinject, just so they have a second dose if the first dose doesn't completely control their symptoms. And in fact, in a study of children with food allergy, 6% needed actually three doses of epinephrine before the uh, reaction was controlled. Another issue that's come up is how you administer the epinephrine. And you'll see articles that come out citing aspects of this that indicate very strongly that it should be given by intramuscular injection or that it should be given by intramuscular injection in the thigh. And in fact, there is really no data in patients who are experiencing anaphylaxis to indicate that IM administration is any more effective than subcutaneous administration. I'd like to thank my guest from George Washington University Medical Center, Dr. Richard Nicholas. Dr. Nicholas, thank you for being our guest this week on Hot Topics in Allergy. It was my pleasure. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Hot Topics in Allergy. This show has been presented by the American College of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. For more information on the ACAAI, please visit acaai.org. For more information about this or any other show, please visit ReachMD.com, which now features on-demand podcasts. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to this month's special series, Focus on Allergy. For a program guide and a complete list of shows, please visit us at ReachMD.com.